Brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, I had the opportunity on many occasions when we lived in West Africa to visit Muslim friends' homes, and I was always impressed on entering those homes of friends who had a copy of the Quran and had that Quran often on a special stand. Oh, am I receiving some feedback here? Okay. They would have the Quran on a special stand in a place of honor in the house. I always thought that was beautiful how central they placed that in their homes. I've never seen it myself, but I also know that there are serious Orthodox Jews who, when they read the Jewish scriptures, will never touch the scriptures with their hand. Instead, they will use what is called a yad, which is the Hebrew word for hand, and it's a long pointer stick, and often the point on the end is in the shape of a finger and they will use that to trace the scriptures rather than touch them out of reverence for their scriptures. When I grew up in my dad's office, he had a wooden stand with a huge big old copy of the Bible that we liked to page through as we, when we were kids. And even here in the church building that we rent, we have a copy of the scriptures on a special stand in front of the church, sort of a place of honor where everybody can see it. I'm not sure if any of you do something similar in your own homes. I think that we often sort of neglect that aspect of giving the scriptures, the physical scriptures, a little bit of reverence. We tend not to do that. I've seen scriptures used as plant holders and doorstops. And I wonder if perhaps we've lost something there. This afternoon we're going to talk about what it means to say that the scriptures are holy and divine. It says on the edge of my Bible here, it is the holy Bible. What does that mean? What does it mean that the scriptures are holy and divine? And we're gonna do that through what the church confesses about that in the Belgic Confession, Article 3, which you can find on page 500 of your books of praise. Belgic Confession, Article 3. The title is The Word of God. We confess that this word of God did not come by the will of man, but that men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, as the Apostle Peter says in 2 Peter 1.21. Thereafter, in his special care for us and our salvation, God commanded his servants, the prophets and apostles, to commit his revealed word to writing. And he himself wrote with his own finger the two tablets of the law. Therefore, we call such writings holy and divine scriptures. So we're gonna examine what this doctrine of the word of God is about. What does it mean that the scriptures are holy and divine? And I'm gonna invite those who are interested to stay after the service if they have any further questions for discussion about that. So let's jump right into that and let's first have a look at the text that's quoted in the Belgian Confession, chapter, uh, Article 3, 2 Peter chapter 1. In 2 Peter chapter 1, 21, it says, we read it, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So, what does that mean? Well, first of all, what does it mean when, they talk, when Peter says prophecy? What is he speaking about? 
Well, if you were to look at 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 1 and 2, you will see that he's talking about the Old Testament prophets. He's talking about the Jewish scriptures in the Old Testament. But he's also talking about the commands of the apostles. So he's talking about the Old, the Old Testament. And he's also talking about the New Testament. Now, I'm not going to dwell on, the, on how the New Testament comes to be, how it comes to be the canon. We'll talk about that at a subsequent date. But here Peter is talking about the prophecy as the Old and New Testament, and we see that later again in chapter 3, verse 15 through 16, where he puts the writings of the Apostle Paul on the same footing as the Old Testament Jewish scriptures. So Peter is saying that the Old Testament and the New Testament, the prophecy, the, the Bible, he says it was not produced by the will of man, but, it was, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And it's interesting, he says, no prophecy was produced by the will of man. And the no prophecy is really emphasized in the Greek. It's as if he took his highlighter and circled it and underlined it three times. No prophecy, none of it, not a single little part of the Old Testament or the New Testament comes from the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And the word that he uses there to talk about carried along by the Holy Spirit is a word that would be used to talk about how a sailboat would be carried along by the wind on the surface of the water. So if you've ever done any sailing or windsurfing or kiteboarding, you can understand how powerful the wind can be and how you can zip along right along the surface of the water. And Peter is saying that the writers of Scripture were carried along in that way by God, directed and guided, blown along by the Holy Spirit so that they communicated the Word of God. So that's, that's the text in, uh, by Peter. Now let's talk briefly about 2 Timothy chapter 3 where we read this. The sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All scripture is breathed out by God profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God might be complete, equipped for every good work. And here I'm going to take out my whiteboard for a moment, because there's a very interesting word there. So the word that is used by Peter is this word here. Theopneustos. So theo, is theos, it means God, like theology is the study of God. Pneustos, if you have a pneumatic drill, it's driven by air. If you have pneumonia, it's, it starts with those same letters. It has to do with air, it has to do with breath, it has to do with breathing. So this word is literally God breathed. <sighs> God breathed, that's the word that he use, that uses there. The King James Version simply says it's inspired by God. Inspired, it's literally God breathed. So Paul is saying there that the scriptures are wise to salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. The scriptures enable you through faith in Jesus Christ to be saved. And why, do they do, why are they able to do that? How do the scriptures have such power? It's because they have been breathed out by God. They've been breathed out. So you could say, well, why are, is Scripture called holy? 
Why is scripture called divine? Because the writers of scripture were carried along by the spirit of God, and the scriptures themselves were breathed out by God. That's why we call them holy scriptures. That's why we say the scriptures are divine. B.B. Warfield, a famous Princeton theologian, said it this way, God exerted a supernatural influence on the sacred writers by the Spirit of God, by virtue of which their writings are given divine trustworthiness. So God exerted a supernatural influence on the, on the sacred writers of Scripture by the Spirit of God. He carried them along by virtue of which their writings are given a divine trustworthiness. They're breathed out by God himself. And that's a good definition of what we would call the inspiration of scriptures. So let's talk a little bit about how that worked. Well, it's not as if the writers of scriptures were robots. It's not as if they were just sitting there and then suddenly the Holy Spirit took them over and they started going like stenographers, that they just wrote it out, all right? From my limited understanding of Islam, that would be an Islamic idea of how the Quran was inspired, all right? So that's not how what we would say happened in scripture. It is true, of course, that sometimes the prophets received exact words from God to simply write out. We hear about you know, that in Deuteronomy 18 and other places. But most of the time in the Old Testament we read about the prophets simply speaking in the name of God. And so we have in Acts chapter 28, verse 25, it says that the Holy Spirit spoke through Isaiah the prophet. The Holy Spirit spoke through the human author who was carried along by the Holy Spirit to say exactly what God wanted them to say, but they wrote with their own personality and their own style and within their own culture and within the limits of their own language. So here's another way to think about that. The idea that scripture is breathed out. So put your hand up here if you have ever broken your smartphone, cracked it. It's like half of you. You crack your smartphone, oh no, it's got all these cracks over it. Now, if you could, you could take that smartphone and you could, you could breathe on it, on the glass, and go, and your, your breath would condensate on the glass, right? But the condensation would take the form of all those cracks on the glass. And so in a similar way, Scripture is breathed out by God. It is the, the breath of God, but it takes the form of the culture and the language and the personalities of the authors themselves. That's a limited way of understanding the inspiration of scripture, but I think it's a pretty good one. And so we have scripture, which has different kinds of writings with different authors and has cultural characteristics, but it's all the God-breathed scripture, it's all holy and it's all divine. Now, if you're like me, you have all these questions that come up about, well then, okay, tell me exactly how that works. And that's a mystery. It's a little bit like the mystery of the humanity and the divinity of Jesus Christ. We don't really quite understand that. We confess it to be true, but we can't understand it perfectly. And in the same way, it's very difficult to really 100% understand how it is that scripture can be God-breathed and yet written by those human authors. It is a mystery. Warfield says this, the Reformed churches admit that this is inscrutable 
They content themselves with defining carefully and holding fast the effect of the divine influence, leaving the mode of divine action by which it is brought about draped in mystery. So we accept this to be true, we confess this as a church, but exactly how it works, the mode in which it's done, it's mysterious. We don't really understand it, and we content ourselves to leave that draped in mystery. We cannot explain everything perfectly. One thing we can say is this. In Belgian Confession, Article 3, it says, thereafter, in his special care for us and for our salvation, God commanded his servants to commit his revealed word to writing. In the Latin version of, of the Belgian Confession, it doesn't just say in his special care, it says in his immense care. It's, it's an exaggerated immense care and concern for us. God commanded his servants to write down his revealed word. And so what we have here is what is often called the doctrine of divine accommodation. The doctrine of divine accommodation. That is, God has come down to our level because of our weakness, and out of great immense concern, special care and concern and love for us, has committed his word to writing for us. John Calvin says this, God lisps to us in scripture. He lisps to us in scripture. And what he means that is God talks to us like a parent might talk to a little child in scripture. Because if he were just to speak at his level, we would never understand it. Daniel Hyde, a URC pastor and author, says that like this, like parents making cooing sounds and eating some baby food before giving it to their children, God has accommodated himself and makes himself more like us in speaking to us in a language that we can understand in his written word. So the very fact that we have inspired scripture, that God has breathed out scripture, carrying along those divine authors, even though we don't understand the mode of it, we can say that it is just an act of God's great concern, his divine love for us, so that we could hear his word and read his word and therefore access salvation by faith through Jesus Christ. If he hadn't done that, imagine what your life would be like if you didn't have a Bible, if you could never read the words of scripture. You'd be lost, you'd be lost, so praise the Lord for his divine love and care for us. And that's why the Christian church has traditionally so supported the work of Bible translation, so that everybody in the world can read the holy and divine scriptures in their own language. So now let's ask this question. How much of the Bible is holy and divine? How much of it is holy and divine? So there's different perspectives on that. One of the perspectives is called dynamic inspiration. Dynamic inspiration. And dynamic inspiration would say the Bible is not, the Bible contains the word of God, but it is not the word of God. That its content is the word of God, but not all of its words are the words of God. All right, that would be called the dynamic view of scripture. The thoughts that are there, the teaching that is there is the word of God, but not all the words and not all the commas and all, you know, all of the rest of it, all right? We would say, no, that's not the case. We believe that not in dynamic 
inspiration, but we believe in what is called, in theological terms, the verbal inspiration, which means that the word of God is inspired right down to the individual words in Hebrew and Greek, right down to the letters. That it's not just, we can't just say, well, it's, it contains the word of God. No, the actual letters and words were inspired by God. It's the verbal inspiration of scripture. And the reason that we do that is because of what scripture itself says. So have a look with me, for instance, at John chapter 10. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. In John chapter 10, verse 34. 34 to 36. So here Jesus is giving an argument. We're not gonna look too deep into the argument, but we're gonna look at how he makes it. In John chapter 10, verse 34, it says, Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and said into the world, you are blasphemy because I said I am the son of God? So without getting too much into the argument there, Jesus is saying, scripture can't be broken. And your own scripture says that, that you are gods, uh, plural. And he's using that as an argument to say, well, you know, that's what scripture says. It, says. it doesn't say there's just one God, there's plural gods in that context. Kids, there is only one God, but Jesus is using an argument here to say, why are, you, why are you saying I'm blaspheming when I say that I'm the son of God? So Jesus himself takes the individual words and takes that as the word of God and says that can't be broken. He uses that as an argument for them. Another example is in Galatians chapter three. Galatians chapter three verse 16, and here Paul does something similar. Galatians chapter three verse 16. Paul says, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. So here Paul is building an argument based on whether or not the noun is plural or singular to point to Christ. So he takes the word of God right down to the, the actual words and whether or not they're plural or singular to say that this is the word of God. So that's why we would say it's not dynamic. It's not just the teaching that is there. Jesus himself, the apostles themselves, understood the verbal inspiration of scripture. It's verbal, it's inspired all the way down to the individual words. There's another, another way of interpreting scripture that some people believe in and they would call that partial inspiration. So what they would say is they'd say, yes, the word of God is, is inspired, um, but what it's really inspired in, it's inspired even perhaps verbally right down to everything it says about mor morality and religious teaching. It's inspired in all those things, but it's not inspired when it comes to the details of history and archeology span and chronologically, uh, uh, chronology, those parts are not inspired, so it's partially inspired. All the religious teaching is inspired, the moral teaching is inspired, but not the other historical elements are not inspired. And to that we would say no. We don't believe in partial inspiration. We believe in what is called plenary inspiration. Plenary inspiration has to do, plenary has to do with something being complete in all its aspects. So we'd say no, the scripture says that all of scripture is inspired, all of it. Not just some of it, 
All of it is inspired. It's all the breathed out word of God. Everything, all of the books, everything that they contain, the things that they say about morality and about religion and about faith, but also everything else that they say is inspired by God. Everything they say about history and archaeology and all those things is also the inspired word of God. So it's not dynamic partial inspiration, it's verbal plenary inspiration. That's what we confess. All of scripture in all of its breadth and all of its depth is the holy word of God. Does that make sense? So let me ask you this question. I have my Bible here, it's the English Standard Version. Is this the word of God? Yeah? So Sam's nodding his head yes. Is this the word of God? I agree with you, I would say yes, but I would also say no. Yes, it's the word of God, but also it's not the word of God. So I better explain that. Why would I say that no, it's not the word of God? When we're speaking about verbal plenary inspiration, that scripture is God breathed down to the very letters and all of it is, what we are speaking about is that the original Greek and Aramaic and Hebrew of scripture, the autographs, the initial scriptures, the originals are inspired. And when Paul wrote the letters, he was, in, he was carried along and what he wrote was inspired scripture. But here's the thing, we don't have the originals. We don't have them, nobody has them, they've been lost. What we have is copies. And then of those copies, we've made translations into various languages. And that means that actually in this translation, there are some things that are missing. So let me show you one of them, or two of them. Have a look with me at 1 John chapter one. In 1 John chapter one, verse four, there's something interesting. It says this, right near the end of your Bible, 1 John chapter one, verse four. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. And then it has a little footnote there on, the, on my Bible, and down on the, on the bottom it says, some manuscripts says your. So, and we are writing these things so that our joy may complete, but there are other manuscripts that say we are writing these things so that your joy may be complete. And we don't know which is the right one because we don't have the original. We have copies and some of those copies say our and some of those copies say your and so we're not quite sure which one is right so we have to put a footnote in the Bible because we don't have the original. So here's another example. You can turn back to the Old Testament. The catechism students really like this one. This is 1 Samuel chapter 13, and the question is how old was Saul when he began to reign, and how long did he reign for? So 1, chapter, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse one, and I'm gonna read my version, and maybe if you have something other than an ESV, it'll say something different. So 1 Samuel chapter 13 verse one, it says here, Saul lived for one year and then became king. And when he had reigned for, and, and when he had reigned for two years over Israel, he chose 3,000 men from Israel. So according to my Bible, it says Saul had lived for one year and then he became king. Did anybody have a Bible that said something different? 
Yeah, what did your Bible say? Yeah, so that's a different version. They've just gone dot, dot, dot. They've left a blank there. Because of all the manuscripts we have, that part's missing. We don't really know. We don't really know what the original said. We're missing it. So, is this the inspired word of God? Yes, but no, it's not the autographs. It's not the original text. And there are things that are missing there. So, does that throw us into crisis? Is it like, oh no, what are we gonna do? We don't, we don't have the word of God, we've got errors in there, we've got things missing? No, that doesn't, that doesn't put us into a crisis. We have thousands and thousands of ancient manuscripts that are copies of scripture. We have way more ancient manuscripts, copies of scripture than we do have for the works of, of Plato, for instance. We have thousands of manuscripts and we have great confidence in God's providence in preserving the transmission of his scriptures over time. What we do have to do is we have this ongoing work of Bible translators and Bible scholars doing something called textual criticism. Textual criticism, and what textual criticism is, is that the that's the work of reconstructing the initial, the original text using all of the best ancient manuscripts. So these scholars, they take all these thousands of manuscripts and they use all kinds of great tools to use those to reconstruct what the original text said. So I'll give you two interesting examples on how they do that, but I'm gonna use examples from outside of scripture, okay? Um, I'm gonna use examples from, from the broader world of literature. So, uh, perhaps I think some, a bunch of you have read the book Pilgrim's Progress. So I, f I forgot to look up when Pilgrim's Progress was written, but we've had copies of the Pilgrim's Progress, and there's a, there's a scene in the Pilgrim's Progress where uh, Christian has to uh, get a key to get himself out of the doubting castle and he sticks the key in the lock, and we have different versions of Pilgrim Progress, and one of the versions says, the, the lock went desperately hard. So it's old English, it went desperately hard. It, it was sort of stuck. And then we have another version that says, the lock went damnable hard. Damnable hard, not like damning as in cursing, but damnable used in a different way to say that the lock couldn't open. So scholars, Pilgrim Progress scholars, have had to figure out which one was the original. Did it say desperately hard or did it say damnable hard? So one of the, the questions that they use to do that is they ask themselves, okay, which reading best explains the origin of the other reading? Okay, which reading best explains the origin of the other reading? So in other words, if the original was desperately hard, is it possible that somehow a copyist would change that to damnable hard? Does that make sense? Or if the original was damnable hard, would it make sense that they eventually got to desperately hard? And they've concluded that what probably happened is that he originally wrote damnable hard, which is an interesting expression, and a later copyist thought, well that sounds a little bit offensive, so I'm just gonna change that word damnable to desperately, which is, means the same thing in this context, and then we'll just keep that version. And so they use that process to understand, okay, we know what the original said. It said damnable hard. And so the scholars use little tools like that along with a huge vast of other, uh, other tools in order to figure out, reconstruct the original text. I'll give you another interesting example that, that talks about scribal error. So, um, 
In, the, in Webster's New International Dictionary, there was for over a decade an entry that said this. The word was doored. They said it was a noun, and it said that in physics and chemistry, it meant density. All right, doored. Noun, physics and chemistry, density. And that word was in the Webster's New International Dictionary for about a decade until they realized that it was an error. It didn't make any sense. You know what the original was? The original was this. D dot or D dot. Density, physics and chemistry. The somehow, somewhere along the line, a copyist had had made a mistake with the, the capital D and took out the periods and wrote doored instead of D, you know, uh, you know, capital letter or D, small letter, meaning density. And for a decade it was in there. But in reviewing it, they realized, hey, what's going on here? And they read it because doored is not an English word, and they figured it out. And so uh, scholars and Bible translators use those type of things to find out, yeah, so when someone is writing the scriptures and they, they made a little mistake, we use various tools to figure out, okay, perhaps they made a mistake, perhaps they took the letter of one word and added it onto the, the last letter of one word and added it onto the beginning of another word, or they, they made some mistake in there. All right, so we use all these tools to figure all of that out. Now, like I said, this doesn't cause us any crisis in our faith. It doesn't cause us any crisis in, being, in terms of what the word of God is. Because of the 138,000 uh, words of the New Testament, there is 1,400 of them of which we are, have some level of uncertainty. That's 1%. 1% on average of the words in Holy Scripture we have some uncertainty about. But none of those words changes in any significant way any doctrine of Scripture. No doctrine hangs on them. In fact, even non-Christian, unbelieving scholars will gladly say that the scriptures that we have today are 99.5% the perfectly reconstructed scripture of the initial text. 99.5% accuracy. And that the 0.5% that we have some doubts on are all on things like your or our things that don't touch any significant doctrine. So, do we say that this is the inspired word of God? Well, we could say no, it is an English translation of Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic, Aramaic, uh, Aramaic texts to reconstruct the original autographs that were inspired. At the same time, we can say but yes, this is the inspired word of God because it's almost 100% faithfully reconstructed original texts. And we have very faithful English translations of those texts so that when you are reading scripture and you're reading an English translation, you can have confidence that this is the word of God and that I can preach off the pulpit, thus says the Lord, with confidence that this is the holy Bible. These are the holy and divine scriptures. Okay.
Perhaps you have some questions about that. I'm happy to stay afterwards and to have a discussion with you. I'd like to finish off with this. I'd like to give you what I believe is the strongest reason to believe that the Bible is holy and authoritative, holy and divine. The very strongest argument for that. And the strongest argument for scripture being holy and divine is Jesus Christ. So I'm going to give you an extended quote from Kevin DeYoung. Jesus held scripture in the highest possible esteem. He knew his Bible intimately and loved it deeply. He often spoke with the language of scripture. He easily alluded to scripture. And in his moments of greatest trial and weakness, like being tempted by the devil or being killed on the cross, he quoted scripture. His mission, he said, was to fulfill scripture, and his teaching always upheld scripture. He never disrespected, never disregarded, never disagreed with a single text of scripture. He affirmed every bit of law, every bit of prophecy and narrative and poetry. He shuddered to think that anyone, anywhere, would violate, ignore, or reject scripture. Jesus believed in the inspiration of scripture, down to the sentences, to the phrases, to the words, to the smallest letters, to the tiniest marks. He accepted the, chronolo the chronology, the miracles, the, uh, the uh, author's descriptions of giving straightforward facts of history. He believed in keeping the spirit of the law without ever minimizing the letter of the law. He affirmed the human authorship of scripture while at the same time bearing witness to the ultimate divine authorship of scripture. Jesus treated the Bible as a necessary word, a sufficient word, a clear word, and the final word. It was never acceptable in his mind to contradict scripture or stand above scripture. He believed that the Bible was all true, all edifying, all important, and all about him. He believed absolutely that the Bible was from God and was absolutely free of error. What scripture says, God says, and what God said was recorded in scripture. Jesus submitted his will to the scriptures, committed his brain to study the scriptures, and humbled his heart to obey the scriptures. In summary, it is impossible to revere the scriptures more deeply or affirm them more completely than Jesus did. The Lord Jesus, God's Son and Savior, believed his Bible was the word of God down to the tiniest speck and that nothing in all those specks and in all those books of his Bible could ever be broken. So if you have questions about all of that, we can speak about them after this service. But if you have serious questions, you must go back to Jesus and start there. And then if by the grace of the Holy Spirit, you accept that Jesus is who he says he is, well then you also grow to accept what Jesus says scriptures are, that the Bible is the holy and divine word of God. Amen? Let's pray. Our dear Lord, Father in heaven, thank you so much, Lord, for your holy word. And Lord, we didn't deserve it, but you caused us to be born here and to live here where we have ready access to so many Bibles. We pray, Lord, that we wouldn't use them as doorstops or plant holders, 
but that they, we would give them, Lord, special and sacred place in our life, and that we would be people of the book, people of the word. Make it so, Lord, in the name of Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit, we pray, amen.